Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Crockcast Podcast. I'm your host, Nate, along with my co-host, Matt. Hey. And today we're joined by Zach Lofman of West Liberty University and one of the co-hosts of the Colubrid and Colubroid Podcast. Zach, welcome to the show. Hey, y'all. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Awesome. Yeah, so, Zach, you mind telling us first how you first got into uh, reptiles and how you basically got to where you are now? <laughs> that takes about an hour and a half. Um, <laughs> so I'll give the abridged version. Um, there's, there's never been a time where I wasn't into animals. Um, I'm a college professor, so I work with a lot of young people. And uh, it's been kind of eye-opening in that I get a lot of students who kind of realize they want to work with animals or do ecology or do research uh, be a scientist like late in life. Uh, and for me, there's never been a second I didn't want to do what I'm doing right now. So uh, basically, I was I and I have the kind of standard story. Um, I was a total dinosaur nerd growing up. Um, and that lasted uh, until I was in third grade, I believe. And it was in third grade that I uh, my family moved out into the country. And uh, kind of, I realized that I, I really liked hunting down the animals and catching the animals. And you can't do that with a non-avian dinosaur. Mm -hmm. I guess technically you could catch a bird and you're technically herping. But, you know, we're not going to go down that path. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, and, and, and yeah, science has always been part of the equation, too. So um, I did science fairs when I was in middle school, uh, through high school, I did what I referred to as nerd camp, which was basically this three week long camp. Um, not really camp, but it was, a a, a program where people, uh, high schoolers that knew they wanted to be scientists could live at the college that I teach at now West Liberty for three weeks. And so I did a salamander project then. And that's when I realized like, okay, yeah, this is definitely what I want to do because in that project, it wasn't just chasing down the animals or keeping the animals in human care, but it was rather like studying a specific aspect of their biology. And I ended up in that experience realizing that that was definitely what I liked doing the most. Um, and so I had an advisor here at West Liberty uh, named Bob Gordon, who was a snake guy. He was, every city has the snake guy. And he was Wheeling, West Virginia's snake guy. So he kind of took me under his wing, and I am forever grateful for that. Um, and so I, I went to university here at West Liberty. Um, had a wonderful experience as an undergrad here. Uh, since Mr. Gordon was more than an advisor, he was essentially my grandfather. And he opened up the zoology lab and, and said, fill it. And I was like, excuse me? <laughs> He's like, fill it with animals. I was like, oh, wow, cool. So... Um, all through college, that's when I got into herpetoculture, big time, um, and kind of did the eclectic thing. That was in the late 90s where there were definitely people breeding, but it was more about keeping. So you had a collection that was essentially one of this, one of that, one of this, one of that. So I had all kinds of monitor lizards in the lab, lots of different species of turtles, um, snakes all over the flipping place. And while I was here at West Liberty, I got the taste for herpetoculture, really liked it, but knew that I really was, I was much more field-based. So I knew graduate school was in my future and I knew I was going to study snakes. 
and uh, met my wife here at West Lib. We got married after the, the, like a month after we graduated. And then we initially went to grad school at Florida Tech in Melbourne, Florida. And I, of course, went down there for the snakes. Uh, the school was not a good fit for Kathy and I, but it was the best herping of my life. Um, and it just really kind of sealed the deal because by that point I had done the keeping piece and I, was, I had done the field piece. And the field work was definitely the more fulfilling of the two for me from as far as a profession was concerned. And so um, we bounced from Florida Tech in Melbourne to Marshall University, which is in Huntington, West Virginia. And I'm a proud alum of the Poly Lab, which was the herpetology lab there. And my two years getting a master's degree were without question. Pro they were among the best two years of my life. Um, I could not accept <laughs> that people could go to school and get paid to go herping. Like that... <laughs> That was my job was to go herping. Like my mind was blown that that this was this was my gig. Uh, and I, I, I learned how to be a scientist there um, and uh, learned a lot about how to do uh, surveys, how to set up a survey, how to work with endangered species, um, how to plan a, a, a week long collecting trip. You know, all these kind of things that you don't think about when when you can only herp on the weekends. When it's your job to go herping for days on end, it, it adds an order of magnitude that a lot of people uh, don't get to experience. And I was just doing this day after day after day after day. So while I was at Marshall, though, um, that was in the early 2000s. And that was when Steve Irwin and Jeff Corwin and, and all those guys were exploding. I was, I was at Marshall in, from 2003 to, through 2005. And uh, I I saw the job market and I knew the job market was actually saturated with herpetologists. And my advisor, Dr. Polly, uh, we were driving home from Southern West Virginia and it is impossible to get anywhere fast in West Virginia. So, you know, you look at the map and it looks like Huntington to this area we were in called Logan was like going to be a 45 minute drive. It ended up being like two hours. And so we're just driving on these roads and, Polly said to me, um, I've been watching you. I know you think it's herps. And I'm not saying don't be a herpetologist, but at the same time, pick a group that nobody studies and be the guy. Because if you can do that, you're going to get funding. And if you get funding, you're going to get a job. I was like, I will listen to you because you have wisdom that I do not have. So I, uh, we were doing a study along the Ohio River floodplain looking for um, smallmouth salamanders and streamside salamanders. Ambistoma texanum and Ambistoma barbari. And we kept getting all these crawdads in our traps. And I had a friend who had set up a drift fence array around a pond, and she was actually studying uh, Plateau Montanus, the uh, mud salamander. And this population around the pond was kind of unique in that they appeared to do some kind of migration, which is weird for them. They're normally, you know, they're certainly not an Ambistomata, but the fact that they were moving in and out of a pond was kind of interesting. Well, one spring night, it rained a lot, and the buckets filled up with not just salamanders, but a bunch of crawdads, and uh, Vanessa was her name. She brought the buckets in, was really pissed, dropped a whole bunch of words that rhyme with the word truck, and then said, <laughs> figure out what these things are. I was like, okay, 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 I will. And I opened up the bucket, and there were like 50 of these big, gnarly crawdads staring back at me. And that is essentially the combination of the Texanum Barbarai study 
and the drift fence array, that's when I kind of got the taste for crayfish. And so I kind of diverged away from herpetology for my PhD because I knew it, that if I went this route, it would be very lucrative for me. So um, I kind of got away from herps for a little bit, uh, taught herpetology here at West Liberty you know, multiple times. But in 2016, and a lot of people that have heard my story on podcast know, my university decided they were going to do a zoo science major. And we hired a guy, and that guy is now the director of the Ogilvy Good Zoo, but he was not the director of the Ogilvy Good Zoo. That's the zoo that's down the road from us. And so we set the major up, and the idea was that I was going to be the ecology guy, and Great House was going to be the zoo guy, and then he became the zoo director, and my chair came to me and was like, you're the zoo guy now. <laughs> and my response to that was, excuse me? <laughs> I'm the field guy. Um, but you know, I thought, what the hell? I mean, people are literally asking me to to build a reptile collection and do it the right way. And so I had gotten back into herpetoculture a little bit in 2014. Um, but in 2016, it was just basically throttled down. And my worlds have now converged because now I'm back doing herpetoculture. I do have some herpetology projects, but it's kind of like a gumbo of her of herps, if you will, my life right now. Cause I, I teach an undergraduate class in herpetology and herpetoculture. I teach a graduate level class in herpetology and herpetoculture. I have a lab that has graduate students called the evidence-based herpetoculture lab. I have graduate students that are studying the um, ecology of queen snakes because the two universes come together with a queen snake. You got a snake that only eats crayfish. There's like no way in hell I'm not studying it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and, and so that's kind of where I am now. Uh, but it's been a, a, a strange herp, herpetological renaissance in my life, which began in, in 2016. So that was a little bit, you know, windy, but that's kind of the, the way the story goes, I guess. No, that's good. I actually have um, two questions off of that. So, uh, well, so one thing that's nice about us is like, I'm more into the, like the research side and then um, Nate is more into the herpetoculture side and, and we like both, mm -hmm. but that's more of our expertise. Um, so it's cool to see that you've kind of had your hands in both. That being yeah. said, um, for someone that wants to go into like more of the research side, um, how would you recommend them going through that? And then two, along with that, um, what what are your thoughts on like um, between getting like a master's and a PhD? Like, oh. should you just stop at a master's or should you get a PhD and that kind of thing? If you're wanting to go into like herpetology or research in general, it, so the, the there's there's two questions there. I'll answer the yeah. first part now, which is how do you go about getting into herpetology? I actually get this a lot because uh, my I tell everybody that my goals are to be an okay scientist, a badass naturalist, and the best teacher I can possibly be. Like, that, 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 that's my trifecta. Yeah. And so, um, obviously, with herpetology, to, to, get, to make it a career involves a lot of education. Um, and so, I tell everyone, and this isn't just because I'm at a little liberal arts school in northern West Virginia that only has 2,500 students. But for your undergraduate, I think it's extremely important that you find a program where you are not just a number, that you are gonna get some personal attention by the professors, and that you have professors that are engaged. 
at a lot of schools, not all schools, I'm saying a lot of schools, undergrads are the, the paycheck that drives the institution. So they want to have be able to say they've got 20, 30, 40,000 undergrads. But if you're a professor in that environment, a lot of times, and I can speak for this perspective because I'm a professor, <laughs> you, you live in this publisher parish environment and you basically have to bring in grants to get tenure. You have to publish papers and you can certainly do that with undergrads, but it's much more lucrative for you to put your attention into the graduate students because the graduate students are literally writing a thesis and a dissertation. And so when you get that funding in hand, you can then turn around right into it, a PhD or master's student and make their thesis be some of your future publications because, and I have a graduate lab in crayfish biology and herpetoculture. And I can tell you every single kid that publishes anything in my laboratory, I am going to be the last author on all those pups. So that's kind of the way that I can ultimately have a lot of scientific output. If you're trying to learn how to be a scientist in that environment, you're probably going to be working with postdocs. You're going to be working with uh, graduate students a lot, but getting the, the, the professor's undivided attention, that's going to be difficult. So what I recommend people do is that you focus your undergrad on a smaller school where you will get that attention. Cause I can flat out tell you being the guy who takes on graduate students, I don't care where you get a degree. What I care most about is the letter of rec. I care about what the professor says. I care about that boots on the ground experience that, that, you have with your professor and I, every student that I've taken into the crayfish lab specifically, I have contacted the letter of rec, the person who wrote the letters of rec and talked to them as an individual. Like I don't, I, I go one step further because it's an investment. If you're taking on a graduate student of time, energy and funding. So you want to make sure you're getting the right one. I feel like you really can get that attention at the mid to um, smaller schools uh, a, a lot more. And I've noticed with, with, my grad students, the ones that come from that kind of smaller environment that did have a lot of undergrad research experience are the ones that hit the ground and just shoom, you know, go off to the stratosphere. The ones that are coming from the giant R1s that didn't necessarily do anything beyond a capstone project. Um, I have to spend a lot of time getting them up to speed because they didn't have that, that individual attention. The, the way to combat that is if you're at the big school, Make sure you do internships that are with, you know, in the field with field people, um, because you can totally get all the experience you want as a researcher over an internship with the Fish and Wildlife Service or State Wildlife Association or Nature Conservancy or any of those uh, and, and make up for that lack of attention you might not be getting if you're at an, a bigger university. Okay. If you're at the bigger university and you're getting the one-on-one -on -one attention, that's fantastic. But the most important thing that you do is you get into an undergrad position where you can do field research, because I can flat out tell you, if your, if your view of what it is to be a field herpetologist is based off national geographic, <laughs> that is just not true. That's just simply not true. Um, great example. I'm, I'm writing a book, the complete guide to hognose snakes. And I, am any you know field guy here i will not send that book off to get published until i have held in my hand every heterodon species and i have to go out into the field to find them i just invested two thousand dollars um 
in a trip to Kansas. And I was in Kansas for 10 days. And we logged in over 100 hours road cruising, found 35 species of snakes. Awesome. But we averaged about a snake an hour, <laughs> if you average it all out. Right. You know? And not a single Western hognose snake. So, you know, I think that it's important that people understand that being a field biologist, period, I don't care if you're an ornithologist, mammologist, herpetologist, whatever, it just involves you having a lot of grit. And being able to deal with the fact that you are going to go out and look for these things, especially rare animals, and there's going to be a whole lot of zeros. And being able to deal with that is a very important um, element of being a good biologist, in my opinion. Um, so, uh, but no, that that's that. And then the other thing I, I would say is just read everything you can. Uh, today is a completely different world than when I was in undergrad and, and graduate school. We don't. We did not have um, ResearchGate. We did not have SciHub. We did not have the ability to find a journal article through a Google search and then get it. So, like, there's really no reason why anybody, if you just learn some of these little tricks, can't start reading books, articles, you know, monographs. Uh, I, I tell all my students here at West Liberty, when it came to becoming an astecologist, a crayfish biologist. There's no class in astecology. <laughs> I had to learn all that stuff. And the way that I learned, you know, learned how to describe a species or learned how to do um, a mark recapture study, or, or you know, it was all through trial and error and just reading. I read everything. Um, and I accepted the fact that the first, second, third, fourth time I went out to try to do something, there's a good chance that it was going to fall flat on my face. I mean, it's just going to be a total freaking disaster. But if I walk away with like one or two little nuggets of knowledge I didn't have before, then it's still a success. And that's a, that's a huge part, I think, of being a, a herpetologist, a field biologist, is, um, is that. What was the second part of the question? <laughs> the second part was, um, uh, what are your thoughts on, because uh, I know there's uh, like debate between like masters and, or going on getting a PhD. Yes. Um, this is a weighted question, and I am, in a lot of ways, like I, people call me the anti-PhD PhD. So <laughs> I, I got hired at West Liberty with my master's degree, um, and I was supposed to just be an instructor, and then my dean walked down the hallway one day and was like, hey, you want to keep your job? Get in a PhD program. I was like, Yeah. <laughs> great timing because my wife's pregnant so <laughs> so anyway i had to do a phd in a completely atypical way like mm -hmm. it was remote this is way before the world we live in today um but as far as the phd versus the masters i tell everybody you have to get a master's if you want to do herpetology uh outside of a zoo setting just accept the fact you're getting a master's because if you want to be a state wildlife biologist you're going to have a master's um, a lot of the state wildlife biologist positions now are being filled with PhDs. So uh, if you don't have that master's degree, you're going to be in trouble um, as far as getting a job's concerned. If you want to be a consultant, which a lot of people don't know that that's a job, uh, but environmental consultants are the people that when you're putting in a bridge or you're putting in a pipeline and it goes through endangered species habitat, um, 
you can't just put the pipeline in. You got to make sure it's not going to wipe out the crawfish frogs or it's not going to wipe out the um, eastern diamondback rattlesnakes or whatever. So you send in consultants who do a complete survey of the area and basically determine whether or not there's the endangered species are there and then they have to mitigate that threat. You can get those jobs with a bachelor's degree, but uh, I know quite a few people that are that work for consulting and are in charge of consulting firms, and they all say masters, 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 because with a master's degree, you write a thesis. When you write a thesis, you learn how to write. So uh, for those jobs, you're going to be writing these great big reports. So, you know, there's that. If you want to get into the Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, you can. You need a master's degree. You can get in with a bachelor's degree, but if you have the MS, you're good to go. And there's actually programs with Fish and Wildlife. One of my students did this. They have an apprentice apprenticeship where right at the end of your master's you don't graduate yet you go and spend three or four months with the service they pay you and they teach you how to be one of them and then you graduate and you almost you basically go to the top of the list to get a job and those are nice jobs those are high paying jobs and you're going to be working in conservation which is kind of the goal for all of us that do this for the the phd um it's a wonderful you learn what you are capable of doing when you go and get a PhD. Uh, that's what I got out of my PhD more than anything. Um, a PhD makes it so you can teach. If you have any aspirations of being a professor, just get the PhD. Just suck it up, accept it, get it, move on. Um, but a PhD is also going to get you a higher paying position anywhere you're going to be with a PhD. So uh, you know, there's that. That being said... While you're a PhD student, your most PhD students are kind of somewhat destitute. <laughs> so, you know, you have to be willing to eat, you know, have no life for three or four years. And it really is an intensive situation. You are literally creating scientific fact that did not exist before you did your dissertation. And with a master's degree, you do that, but you might come up with like one publication. Most PhDs, you're not defending till you have at least three to five pups. And some people love writing. I happen to love writing. Other people hate and loathe it. If you don't like writing, PhD might not be the best avenue for you. So you kind of have to do some soul searching. Um, and the other thing I would say, though, to anybody that's considering any of this is just make sure that whatever grad program you go into, the project you're working on, you have to like it. If you don't like that project... The amount of time and energy that you put into that project, it's just going to be misery. Um, if you love what you're doing and can nerd out and geek out and never really stop thinking about it, be the best time of your life. So that's why I say like my master's degree was awesome. Um, so, yeah, that's that's kind of a long-winded uh, answer there, but that's my two cents on it. <laughs> No, that was that was great. I've uh, I like to talk to people about that, uh, especially because I'm working on uh, going mm -hmm. to get my master's soon and stuff. So, um, and everyone has a different opinion on it. So I like to hear you know what everyone yeah. thinks, especially I, from someone who actually like is a teacher and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, the the one thing I will say about being a grad student is we talk a lot about work life balance in 2021, and a good graduate student. I'm not saying you don't have a work-life balance, but you are going to be thinking about this stuff a lot. Doesn't mean that you have to think about it like 24 hours a day, but, but grad school is not as, not 
especially in ecology and conservation, it is not the kind of gig where you like go in at eight in the morning and then you're done at four and you like punch out and then you go do something else. Like if you're studying an animal and that animal has a certain activity period and that's it, you have no life during that activity period. That's the, <laughs> that's when you got to get them. Um, I, not to bring it back to crawdads, but the, the field-based research I have is with crayfish. And I have a, a two grad students right now who are studying a crayfish. We got big grant in South Carolina to go down and study this group of crayfish that are called Distocambaris. That's the genus name. And these animals live in sand hill upland environments that during late spring through the fall, when there's no rain, it's all sand and a little bit of clay and the sun bakes it like concrete. And these things live in burrows. But during from like Valentine's Day to Easter, when it's rainy, uh, you can catch them. And my two grad students are literally relocating to South Carolina from Valentine's Day to Easter. And I have explained to them multiple times, you know, if, when the rains come, you're out. So if they don't come until 10 o'clock at night, you are out at 10 o'clock at night until <laughs> four in the morning. Because if you don't do that, you're going to end up writing a thesis that says these animals are very rare. And in reality, they may not be rare at all. Their perceived rarity just might be an artifact of um, improper sampling. So that's a that's an aspect of this. But you know, if you're a herper and this is what you're doing, this shouldn't be misery. This sh this should be almost like you're living the dream. That's that's how it was when I was at Marshall. Like Dr. Polly would walk down the hallway and be like, "It's raining, go." I'm like, "What do you mean go? Where am I going?" And <laughs> <laughs> like, go to the high river floodplain, go to this county, go to this county. I want you driving all night. Let's look for the, the salamanders on the road. And I was, I, I pinched myself. I'm like, this is really happening. Um, and I would miss class and it was okay because uh, as a grad student, that's your, your main objective in life is going to be research. So now it was kind of funny because it kept raining on Wednesday nights. That's when I had con bio and it was a night class. And I think it was the fifth week in a row where it was raining and he came down the hallway. This is one of my favorite moments in grad school. And he's like, where have you been? Like, <laughs> what are you talking about? You've missed like five weeks of class. It's like, you keep sending me out to look for these damn salamanders. It's like, oh yeah, yeah. That's where you've been. Oh, well, it's <laughs> raining tonight too. So you need to go again. I was like, okay. So, you know, <laughs> that, that's that now that I have a million grad students, I totally understand why he forgot that he had sent me out because every day is like 500 individual little conversations, but that's the reality of grad school. <laughs> um, so working with, I don't know a whole ton about crayfish, but ha being like a herp guy and have working with salamanders. And then now that your expertise is in crayfish, have you ever come across working with or come across just chytrid fungus disease with that? Um, no, not so much. The, the chytrid fungus issue with herps and crawdads is primarily associated with the red swamp crayfish. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's it's also mostly associated with populations of herps where red swamps have been introduced. And basically the chytrid that's found here in their native range in the southeast is a different strain or genetic line is introduced to a place like California. And then you, you see issues. Um, what I actually run into more than anything is a whole bunch of really interesting uh, reptile and crayfish associations. So mm. uh, example, 
Um, I've dug a lot of crayfish burrows. And uh, when you get down into the southeastern U.S., digging crayfish burrows is really kind of it, it's fun because you can bump into snakes and frogs and all kinds of things down in the burrows. It's great when I'm digging with like other crayfish people that aren't necessarily hurt people. Cause when they find the snakes, they like freak out <laughs> and I'm like it's Christmas morning. So right. <laughs> yeah. right. But anyway, um, but like, you know, I, I, I know that the crawdads are, you, the, the, the burrows that they're making, I think that crayfish are critically important for maintaining a lot of herpetofaunal communities in the southeastern United States because they create these areas where the animals can get away from heat. And I think more importantly, since they burrow to the groundwater table, and I don't think herpetologists have really kind of dove into this and it's not their fault. They're not studying crayfish. But I think that there's an awful lot of water resource potential where we perceive it to be a drought and these crayfish are digging down to the water table and things like, you know, ground dwelling lizards and snakes and, and animals like that are actually able to go dive down the burrow and actually get access to water. Because when yeah. it's dry outside and we're you know, on the surface and we start digging burrows, you start pulling frogs out of those things hand over fist because it. It, you know, it's a water refugia for them in a drought. So, no, that's totally an area of future research for me. I just have noted everything. I, I wrote up an observation with um, the golf. Uh, I don't remember the common name. It's Regina rigida or Liodides rigida, depending on your taxonomy. Um, but it's one of the crayfish snakes. And I, I was down in near Mobile, Alabama, looking for a crayfish, a very rare crayfish. And we were in the colony and just right on the surface was a dead crawfish snake. It's like, what the hell is this? And then I picked it up, felt a lump. And of course I was going to, you know, dissect that out and see what it had eaten. And it had actually eaten this endangered crayfish, which was a burrower. So in that instance, you know, if you didn't know that that was a crayfish that lives in a burrow and it's not one that just lives out in the swamp, you wouldn't realize how big a deal that was but that crayfish that snake almost certainly had to go down in the burrow to pluck the crawdad out instead of go out into the swamp and get the things we normally associate them with so so if that's true that they're um you know burning down to the water table and all that stuff could you make an argument then um that they could be more important um than a gopher tortoise not the hate on the gopher tortoise but oh i think they're just as important um, this is yeah, without question. Uh, gopher tortoises and crawdads are doing the exact same ecological function. They're creating a complex heterogeneous habitat that in their absence is not present. And it's a, it's a, you know, it's an underground habitat. And as soon as you get a meter underground, you get kind of the constant climatic regime, which basically is going to be utilized by anything that's ectothermic or cold blooded. So uh, I just think that the gopher tortoises obviously are digging, digging a bigger burrow, so they're going to be impacting bigger vertebrates. Right. And the crawdads are digging a smaller burrow, so they're going to be impacting smaller vertebrates. More of an opportunity so. for snakes. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. Um, is there – this may not be something that you guys have looked into yet, but is there a um, uh, a certain uh, size that they have to reach before a uh, burrow is being able to be utilized by a snake? Um, I think at least a centimeter diameter to the burrow opening. Uh, we found that same trip that we found the 
Brigida, that it, the adult, um, we dug up quite a few young of the year Rigida right out of crayfish burrows that were about a little bit bigger than the diameter of a pencil eraser. Wow. Uh, we also dug up Amphuma, which was really cool. Yeah. Um, Amphuma means were kind of up in the crayfish burrows too. And they were itty bitties, like fresh out of the egg Amphuma, which was really, really neat to see. So. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, bit less crayfish oriented but you mentioned that you have a uh, for your zoo program you kind of built your uh, reptile collection at the zoo up from the ground level and you especially emphasize that you built it correctly so you want to go a little bit to about that collection your work with that yeah, yeah. So, so we we knew at the onset of the zoo science degree i knew that i wanted to have that it was extremely important if we were going to be training zookeepers that they get as much experiential learning as possible, which is fancy education speak for, I don't want to just kill him with PowerPoints. If we're talking about how to hold a snake properly, I want to have multiple kinds of snakes to hold big ones, little ones, medium ones, calm ones, psychotic snakes. Like <laughs> basically, you know, if you only learn how to pick up a ball Python and then you're tasked with picking up an angry Kribo. That's like a whole world of, of difference. So I knew we needed to have a diverse collection of animals. I also knew it was going to be reptiles for two reasons. One, um, that's my background. And if I'm going to be in charge of something, I got to like it. So we're going to stick with the animals that I feel comfortable with. And two, if you, if you start building up your numbers of mammals and birds, you have to get USDA permits. And I just didn't want to deal with the USDA permits. Uh, I don't mind dealing with the USDA permits for a handful of mammals. But when you get up, you know, around 10, 20 different mammal species, you got a problem in permitting. And that's you need time. And I don't have time to do hardly anything, it seems. So <laughs> so um, so I knew that it was going to be reptiles. I knew that I wanted to do a lot of research into the whole argument that's present in herpetoculture, which is the whole rack versus naturalistic. Mm. You know, I, as a scientist, look at that argument and I literally see pluses and minuses to both. So I thought it would be cool to get animals that would be active, that would be moving around a bunch um, and have animals that weren't moving around a bunch. So we could kind of do some research with that. If we're going to do that, we need animals in replicate because if you just study one ball Python, you can't make a determination for all by ball python. Sorry. So we were going to have research colonies of certain taxa. And then I also knew I didn't want to have what I refer to as a Petco collection. I didn't want to have crested beardies, corn yeah. snakes, Cali Kings, and that's it. I wanted to have animals that were a little like, not necessarily one of a kind, super rare, but things that were that if a person with a herpetological background walks into our building they kind of walk away like, okay, they know what they're doing. Um, so, so knowing all of that, uh, we started small and um, built some built-in enclosures and we got some of the larger lizard species. So I got a black and white tegu, um, raised it from like a hatchling up. So it was socialized and it definitely knew who I was, which was good. We, um, we purchased a water monitor so 
and I, I, I got the subspecies Macromaculatus, which is one that gets big but doesn't get huge. Um, so, but that required a large build-in enclosure, so we had to do that. We did. Uh, and then I focused a lot early on on geckos. So I knew that Rachodactylus or Diplodactylid geckos were pretty easy to take care of. Uh, but they were also kind of, they had some complicated behaviors. So our one Petco herp, if you will, is we do have a large colony of crestids because I, I bred all the crestids at my house and then kept track of their lineages. And we used them as a mock for a stud book. So basically, you know, keeping track of genes and lineages and all that kind of stuff with a living collection. We have those. Um, we have some gargoyle geckos. And then I, I purchased a bunch of Lichianus. So we have the great big giant geckos. And we have the island strains or races. And we have the mainlands. And I wanted those because they have very complex behaviors. They set up monogamous bonds. Um, they're a little bit intimidating. Uh, they vocalize. And I thought that they would be a good intermediate-sized animal to introduce the students to all of that. And then basically a smattering of snakes. I wanted to get as many different types of snakes as possible. So we have pythons and boas and colubrids and, and colubroids, and it's just taken off. And then over time, we brought on the grad students, the grad students' projects. You know, their theses for zoo science are based out of the collection. So I started amassing uh, – collections of certain species where the goal is to get to between 15 and 30 individuals. So we have a statistically, you know, a, a population size that goes beyond normality. So um, that's been fun. Right now we have a corn snake colony, a hognose snake colony, um, false water cobra colony, which is a very weird snake to have a colony of, but they just happen to be my favorite snake on planet earth. So that's why they're a colony. Uh, and so, yeah, but everything is in PVC enclosures. We also have large racks um, and we do a lot of science with the animals. So, you know, they're not pets by any stretch of the imagination. Um, every animal in this particular collection has a purpose and several of them actually have multiple purposes. So that's kind of where we stand right now. Right now. Uh, they mentioned you have that uh, colony of false water cobras you mentioned that your favorite snake in the whole world yeah i'm going a little bit in depth about i guess what you find so uh fascinating and enjoyable about them oh dear <laughs> <laughs> okay um all right well i like them so much that i'm writing a book on them in fact it is right here i was editing it before you guys came on so they inspired me a little bit uh, my the thing I love about false water cobras is that they kind of check every box that I like as well, I like in reptiles. So my favorite herps are herps that live in water. I, I don't know why. I've just always had a strong affinity to creeks, rivers, and swamps. Like those are my favorite habitats on on planet Earth. Um, and of course, falsies go to water. I like animals that defend themselves i guess that's the professional way of saying uh <laughs> if it tries to rip my face off i'm giggling and cackling like an idiot as that's happening like that's always been something that i've liked and initially i had this perception that false water cobras were that i can tell you that they aren't now that i you know keep them but they will definitely let you know uh you're, you're pushing me too much 
Um, I'm not comfortable with what's going on. I really appreciate that part of their biology. They're the only snake I've ever worked with that whips its tail like a iguana or a monitor lizard. And when they whip you, like it, a big seven foot false water cobra does that. It hurts. It gets your attention. Sure. The other thing is that they get to be freaking seven feet long and weigh about 10 pounds. <laughs> so this is not a small snake. Um, when they, a large falsy has the same dimensions as a, a woma or a black-headed python. Like they are a big, burly animal. And then the final part is that they have a ridiculous feeding response that you, you cannot appreciate it until you've observed it. Uh, they do have the rear fang thing going for them, which I'll fully admit I do kind of like that aspect of, of, of them. And they have an intelligence, and I will use the word intelligence because we've actually done experiments now, and the results of those experiments are indicative of intelligence. So, you know, this is a snake that you can actually train. So we've target trained our snakes. Um, I have a graduate student. This was her thesis. She can shift the false water cobras from their bins into a feeding, feeding bin by presenting a target. We, we, you can do that with other snakes. It takes them a while. The problem with to learn it, individual false water cobras can learn this in an incredibly short period of time. But falsies are so independent as animals that they will just choose not to learn it. Like they know what's going on. They just don't care. I really like that defiant aspect of their biology. So, uh, yeah, they're easy to breed. Um, they're, they're fun to feed. They kind of just check all the boxes for me. Uh, I, I did not back prior to starting Zusai. If somebody asked me what my favorite snake was, I would tell them, well, I really like Nerodia and I really like this and I have this favorite and it's my favorite pit viper. And this is my favorite Python. And this is my favorite Colubrid. Uh, I, I didn't really have a favorite. Now I do have a favorite and it's them. And I'm, I'm, I'm going on record with your podcast if I do not make it to Argentina or Paraguay to find one in the wild before I die, I will die unhappy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have to herp one of these things. Like, like I could accept spending all that time in Kansas not getting a Western hognose snake. I will get my Western hognose snake. Um, I have to find one of these things in the wild. There's just there's just no way. I'm, I don't want to keep it. I want to watch it. You know, possibly capture. I don't even know if I have to catch it. I just want to see it doing its thing out in nature. Like that just has to happen. So. I'm I'm the same exact way when it comes to stuff like that. I got to see, like if something cool, I got to go see it in the wild. Like yes. it, that's mm -hmm. just, that's just the way I, I just got to see it. It's so cool. Um, yeah. So going off of that with rear fangs and whatnot, I was listening to these one guys, they were talking about rear fang snakes. Um, and they were saying that they didn't think people should handle rear fang snakes like hognose and whatnot um, for the venom aspect and stuff like that. What are your thoughts on that? That is a great question. So, I so given that I'm I'm writing the book on so the first book I'm writing is on South American dipsadids, which are uh, it's a group of, it's actually a family of snakes that people don't really recognize as a family, though all the scientific evidence of the world supports it. And <laughs> hognose snakes are in that family, Dipsadidae, which a lot of people don't realize. That's why we named our podcast, by the way, Colubrid and Colubroid Radio, because I'm such a freaking nerd that I couldn't <laughs> have my podcast called Colubrid 
radio and be talking about a false water cobra all the time. Like, no, we're going to do this right. So with these <laughs> dipsadids, I can speak to the dipsadids. Um, the dipsadids have an awful lot of these things called metalloproteases in their Duvernoy's gland secretions. Uh, and metalloproteases are a group of enzymes that are present in viperid venom. So the, like the reason why when a timber rattlesnake bites you and you go, ouch, that hurts real bad. And my hand is turning to goop. One of the main drivers of that enzymatic action are all the metalloproteases. When you look in the Duvernoy secretions of most dipsatted snakes, they have the exact same metalloproteases. So at that level, it's, it's kind of black and white. If they have the same thing a viper has, by all means, we should not be holding them. But then that begs the question, when you see somebody getting bitten after they boop the snoot of a hognose snake, which that <laughs> statement, by the way, I'm just going to stop because I'll start using the words that rhyme with truck if we start talking about booping snoots. <laughs> I hate that. But anyway, if you do that and then the hognose snake goes like nom nom and bites you, uh, some people have nothing happen to them. Other people get these massive lymphatic edemas and, you know, they absolutely have something in there. Well, what? why? Why does one person have it? One person doesn't. The problem is in the venom delivery. A viper has a closed venom delivery system, and it's pressurized. So basically, when a viper bites you, the venom's going to go down the venom gland, um, down the venom duct, down the fang, and come out one hole. So it's all contained. With these dipsatids, some of them actually do have lumens and things in their duvernoid glands, but most of them are just exuding it out onto the surface of these teeth in the back of their mouth, where there's a groove. And then it's going to kind of go down that groove mixed with the spit of the snake and it's no, and it's not pressurized. So the venom delivery is exponentially less involved than it is with a viper. So what ends up happening is most people will get bit and nothing happens, but most is not all. So then someone's going to get nailed and it's going to be bad. So I am on team use hooks, use gloves. Like, I know that there are people that listen to this and be like, what the hell is he talking about? It's a hognose <laughs> snake. If you actually do the research and look into Western hognose snake bites, like the journal articles that go over, like there's a genus called Toxicon where they do a lot of bite histories. And I've read the, um, the Plains hognose snake bites or Western hogs. Some of those things are horrific. Like if people, like we're talking great big blood blisters that pop. Um, and then you get secondary infections and then it gets necrotic. Like the same thing you see with a viper. It's just one in 10 million people or something crazy, but I don't want to be that one in 10 million. So, you know, there's that. And it's really kind of funny because some rear fang snakes have this perception of being extremely hot. I'm not going to talk about which ones that in reality are not. And others we kind of think of as just, they're not that dangerous. We can, you know, hand over hand. And they actually have a pretty significant uh, Duvernoy secretion in there. So I, I, I say hooks all the way. Um, what's it going to hurt? Yeah. Uh, you know, and the, the thing that people need to realize, especially keepers, um, I was on social media today and I had to put the phone down because there was some guy free handling a Bushmaster because that's yeah. wise. Um, <laughs> but like he literally said, like, what, what's it matter? Why does it matter if? If he's doing that, leave him alone. This is why it matters. When that 
guy gets bit by the Bushmaster or some little six-year-old boops the snoot of the hawknose snake and then gets latched onto, and then her finger becomes extremely necrotic. Somebody in a city council, some legislature guy, someone who's making rules is going to see that and be like, wait a minute, they have these things? Well, they shouldn't have these things, and that's what leads to this overregulation. If we're always putting our best foot forward, we keep that from happening. And, and that's why I think it's so important for people to just respect the snakes. It's that simple. When I first heard about that with the hognose snakes, I was the, I had the same reaction. I was like, what is this guy talking about? It's just a hognose snake. And then so so then I went and looked into the bite stuff and I was like, oh, yeah. So I've since then I've been more team like hooks with that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, why? So is since um, it, it's it's an open system, it's not pressurized. One, why is it like that? Why did they evolve to be like that? And then two the people that aren't having any symptoms, is it that they're just not getting envenomated or is it um, they're just not having a reaction to it? Yeah. I'll, I'll do the second one first and then the first one second. Yeah. Um, the people that are not getting a reaction, this just gets into all the indiv individual variation within a population. It's classic biology. Uh, all of us on this podcast, anyone listening to this, we all have a different set of genes that control our response to foreign agents that enter our body and some people are hypersensitive and so if someone's hypersensitive to any of those molecules that are present in the duvernoy's secretion of a plains hognose snake they're going to have a much bigger reaction than somebody who does not necessarily have hypersensitivity but what can happen with rear fang snakes which people do not realize is if you work with them day in day out you can absolutely have the same effect people have that work with vipers and the lapids day in, day out. You're going to be exposed to those proteins because the spit in their mouths, it falls off, it wipes off on the substrate, wipes off on the um, uh, enclosure. And then you're going to become, you can actually build a hypersensitivity because you're always using your antibodies and your, in your immune system to combat the toxin. And inevitably you reach a point where you use it all up. Uh, that's a really primitive explanation for what's going on. And there might be someone listening and like, it's not quite like that. And that's true. But essentially, that is what's happening. So in that situation, you can get bit and have a really bad reaction. So like I have the water cobras and we produce a lot of water cobras for experiments. And I have to sex these things. And uh, I have on gloves and things. But even then, the little the neonates are they're insane. And they're whipping everywhere. And I've totally been um, bit on the wrist like two or three times. Nothing has ever happened to me. Uh, but I know, given that there's literally, they're right there. <laughs> I sit in this office all day long with them. I'm, I'm being exposed to that. I'm going to have a reaction sometime. You know what I'm saying? So that's kind of how that, that works. If they, with these snakes though, if they bite you and they are able to really get a hold of you and work in the the secretions that's when you're going to have a really nasty if you're going to have a nasty reaction that's when you're going to have it um so and the first the other question was why is their system built that way basically yeah, yeah. so that's a that's also an, a very interesting nerdy <laughs> discussion um the rear fan condition has evolved independently in multiple lineages of the advanced snakes so if you go by the most up-to-date modern taxonomy 
there's a group of colubroid snakes in Africa. They're called the Lamprophiids. They include things like Malagasy hognose snakes, Malagasy cat-eyed snakes, house snakes. Those guys have a rear fang delivery system. Um, there's the family Dipsatidae, which is the most diverse group of snakes in uh, the Neotropics in Amazonia throughout South America. Every one of them has a rear fang. You have true colubrids like Boiga in the south in Southeast Asia, uh, the mangrove snake, the green cat-eyed snake, uh, the dog-toothed cat-eyed snakes, or Toxicodryas is their genus name. You know, they have this rear fang condition as well. So in reality, the rear fang venom delivery system is the most common venom delivery system in snakes. It's just we spend so much time focusing on vipers and elapids that we think that they are the main type of venom, venomous snake. In fact, natricines, garter snakes. There's a species of garter snake out west. I can't remember which one it is off the top of my head. Where people have been nailed by it. It might be Thamnophis elegans. And have the same kind of reaction you would from being bit by a small neonatal cottonmouth. Or sorry, copperhead. So, you know, that this has evolved many times. The idea for... One of the ideas for where it came from is basically to aid in digestion. Hmm. If you start to digest something while it's alive, you're probably going to kill it. So there's an added benefit of that. Um, and then when you start tweaking out those biomolecules and evolving different strategies for different types of animals, you're going to just kind of serendipitously stumble onto a neurotoxin when you were primarily doing proteolytic things with your venom. And now, boom, neurotoxic venoms show up. Uh, but it's much easier evolutionarily to simply take a gland that is associated with your top jaw and, and historically was dumping saliva and turning that into something that's making a peptide and then taking the teeth in the back of your mouth and just making them bigger. That's easier to do than to evolve a venom gland, a venom duct, a fang. Like if you think about a pit viper, they don't just have a fang. They got a fang on a hinge that someone, mm. you know, there's selenoglyphus snake so that's moving uh that's difficult there's a whole lot of evolution going on there if you just simply make the teeth of your back of your mouth bigger that can happen randomly within a population and it ends up being a benefit beneficial trait and then it manifests itself ultimately so uh but but that's kind of the the, the backing behind that it's so uh so would the burrowing asp snakes of like uh east uh -huh. africa and middle east be that rear fang or are they something else entirely? No, they're their own happy little <laughs> nightmare. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Stiletto snakes. Yes. I, I saw those in Pennsylvania. A lot of their shows around Pittsburgh have venomous snakes in them. And I was, I was at a show in September and I saw stiletto snakes on a table. I'm just thinking, why? <laughs> why would anybody want that? Um, but anyway, no, they, they are, they're, they're their own unique, um fanged snake they're fantastic but i don't want to touch one ever <laughs> so. that's interesting i always i i assumed that rear fanged would be more of a and this might be a too strong of a word but more of a disadvantage compared to like an elaphid or selenoglyphic you know snakes and stuff but uh to your point, that makes a lot more sense that it's just much easier to evolve and it obviously gives you an added benefit to something that's not necessarily ven venomous. Yeah. And given the position of where the teeth are, 
if you can get the prey item back in your mouth far enough to employ those teeth, the teeth also serve this function in a lot of species where they're basically, they serve as a point of, they, they're going to grab hold of the head of the prey item. And then since they're large and they're oftentimes recurved, so they're going to be facing towards the back of the mouth, it's almost like a, having fishing hooks in the back of your mouth. Like the frog's not going to be able to wiggle out of your mouth. It's got to get past these large yeah, teeth. So... So, uh, yeah, but you mentioned that you call your show the uh, Colubrid and Colubroid Radio yeah. because Colubrids have been broken up and reclassified and shifted around a lot more in the, lately. Mm -hmm. So you want to go a little bit more into details about, like, I, I don't know, say this, uh, like, uh, well, what is a true Colubrid, I guess? Okay, so... The Colubra D, as it was historically known, was when I teach herpetology, I always refer to it as one of the best examples of a taxonomic dumpster fire ever created. <laughs> so basically, uh, there's a term in taxonomy and systematics called a um, there's a lot of groups that we refer to as a junk drawer taxa that's actually like written in formal peer reviewed papers. <laughs> and if you think about what your junk drawer is, you know, most houses have one of those. But you open it up and there's staples, paper clips, a screwdriver, baggies, a notebook, tape, like just total random stuff. And the reason why you put it in the junk drawer is you got to have a place to put it. But none of these things really has it's it's not logical to dedicate one specific shelf or something to to that. And Colubrity absolutely was that. And the reason why Colubrity historically was this taxonomic junk drawer is if you think about it the colubrids the, the term colubrid literally translates to typical snake so basically uh, all the snakes that were special and in their phenotype got their own families and what i mean is like you look at a boa and a python you know there's something different about that snake uh the pythons have the heat pits boas many of them get large um they've got the uh, spurs down by their cloaca so you can like look at them and physically see traits that you can use to allocate and put them in their own group. With a viper, you got the fixed fangs, live birth for most of them, egg layers for some of them. Um, a lapids, you got the fixed fangs. It's all well and good. And then you have other things like sea snakes and the uh, acrocordids and uh, the uh, tie flops, um, worm snakes. So you got all these different snakes that have their the very distinct phenotype. But then when you pick up a garter snake and a rat snake, at face value, you can kind of tell they're different. Garter snakes are squishy. Um, rat snakes are kind of solid. Garter snakes have live young. Rat snakes lay eggs. But at the same time, they they kind of have the same general body plan. Neither of them has a pit. Neither of them has spurs. You know. And so what taxonomists did is they would just simply say, you're a colubrid and put you in the colubrity. Mm -hmm. And what a lot of people in herpetoculture don't realize is that Colubrity has been argued about, fussed over since like the late 1800s. And all throughout, from 1900 to 2000, there were people working on this all the time. And basically what people were arguing was there really wasn't, uh, there were these traits that you could use to separate them out into subfamilies, which is basically their own little groups. And that's where terms like natricines, um, you might hear people say that. 
for the longest time, garter snakes, water snakes, queen snakes, Kirtland snakes, uh, line snakes, the storaria, they were all in the subfamily of colubridae called the natricinae, natricines. Um, and the reason why they were put in their own group is it made sense because while they have a typical body plan, all of these snakes have keeled scales. All of these snakes have a specific type of musculature where they're not constricting prey. That's why they're squishy. All these snakes are vivip or ovoviviparous to viviparous. So they all have live young. So we got what we need to put them in their own group. Um, and basically the argument was, is it worth doing? Can we just keep them in as a subfamily or do we recognize them as a family? And what happened is in, in the late 90s, early 2000s, people started looking at DNA. And initially they were using the cytochrome oxidase 1 gene. Uh, then they started to add in their nuclear genes. Now they're doing whole genomes. It's crazy. But when you when you start looking at the DNA, the DNA very clearly shows that these things are families, that the colubridae is multiple families, or what was perceived as the colubridae is now multiple families, and that some of these families, when you look at what historically was a, what is going to be a colubrid forever, are actually not closely related to them at all and are more closely related to things like cobras. Uh, and so now, today, we have lots of things that were subfamilies that are now families. And just a quick rundown. Um, the family colubridae, what will forever be a colubrid, it encompasses the large, large colubrids that are solid in musculature. Most of them are rodentiferous, so they're going to be eating rodents. They constrict their prey uh, or they eat birds. Um, they're egg layers. Most of them um, have this weird thing going on where they don't really have well-developed Duvernoy secretions, though some of them absolutely do. And the colubridae include uh, the, um, all the, the rat snakes, the milk snakes, uh, fox snakes, gopher snakes, bull snakes, uh, the Asiatic rat snakes. They include down in, in South America, Spoloides, the, um, uh, the puffing snakes and uh, Spoloides pilatus. I don't know what the common tiger rat snake. Is that what that one is? Yeah. Uh, yeah. My buddy has a pair of those. So. Yes. So, but, but that's it. That's what people don't realize. Like that's your colubrid. Everything else, if you're going to be a, a scientist and do this, use your terminology right, is what we call a colubroid. And the word and the suffix "broid" means to take the form of. So you can totally give credence to the fact that you know these things look like members of the family colubridae, but they are based off all the best available evidence today, definitely in their own family. So like now, all those nature scenes, they're in their own family. The natricity, um, hmm. the dipsatids are now in their own family. The dipsatidae, uh, the one that I think is really interesting that it just seems like every like no one got the memo on, but it's crazy, is the family Lamprophiidae, which is uh, uh, the African rear fanged snakes, hmm. and they are actually the ones that are more closely related to cobras than they are to colubrids. They they, they form a, a clade or a grouping where you have a lapids and you have these lamprophiids. Uh, and then you got to go back on the tree to a node and then you drop down and then you get into the node that has the nature scenes, the dipsatids and the true colubrids. In it. So, and a lot of people will say to me like, why do you care? <laughs> why does it matter? I think it matters on a lot of different levels because a, 
uh, if you're talking to scientists, you want to sound like you know what you're talking about. Right. And I can flat out tell you, being a card-carrying scientist, nothing <laughs> drives me crazier, especially in the past two years, than having somebody say, well, I've learned it this way, and that's just the way it's going to be. You know, Well, that's all well and good, but you learned it incorrectly, and let's you know, adapt and evolve our right. way of understanding. Um, but it also comes into keeping, because I take this evolutionary perspective with my keeping, and I can flat out tell you, like, understanding what makes a natricid a natricid, and then applying that natural history knowledge to their keeping makes me a better water snake keeper or a better garter snake keeper. And if I just say, oh, it's a colubrid, then I'm essentially saying it's just like a corn snake. And it's about as different from a corn snake as you can get. <laughs> right. So, um, so that's why I take, you know, I, I actually honor that stuff. And I think it's important for people to understand it. And if you have five snakes at home, you don't have to know all this stuff. But if you're going to be like a serious herpetoculturalist or you're going to be a, you definitely want to go into academic herpetology, you got to learn it. Uh, now, what's neat is the verdict is actually still out. There's there's the younger herpetologists seem to adopt this new wave of thinking. The older guard of herpetology, some do, some don't. And it's been kind of interesting to sit back in the bleachers and watch this because since I'm, a, you know, my, my day job is being a crayfish biologist, but I can take all the bits and pieces I know and now apply it to herpetology. Uh, it's been kind of fun. It's actually been kind of nice <laughs> being in this position and not having to have like an official stance with, with, you know, other herpetologists and things like that. Yeah, um, Go ahead, Nate. Yeah. yeah. But I was just going to say, hearing about that, the African rear fangs are more closely related to cobras. I know this isn't 100% accurate, but now I'm kind of clicks why boom slings and twig snakes are, Pack a lot more punch than a garter mm -hmm. snake would. Yeah. Interesting. Um, uh, I forgot what I was going to say now. Um, oh, um, that's one thing that I find funny with herpetology is it's, you know, it's uh, when it like originally kind of like first came on the scene, if you will, uh, way back when. Uh, you have all those guys, which is kind of like the older groups. And then and then it kind of it, more recently kind of just exploded. And so you have that there's like kind of a big gap between like the younger people and the older people. And so it's really it, every issue you can see it kind of divided between that, the younger people and the yep. older people. And so, so it's I like talking to the the two groups because it's an, it's just interesting to see how they, they see things completely differently, too. So yeah. it's really interesting. Well, um. What so do you have? Uh, do you um are clubrids your favorite or clubroids your favorite? Um, or is it just false water cobras that you're really more into with that? Uh, it's definitely clubroid, clubrids and clubroids. They're they're my they're my jam. When we got the collection here, I was like pythons, let's get pythons, <laughs> and I it was really weird. I I thought I. I wanted to be a Marilia person, <laughs> and I am. I've got um, poplin carpets or whatever we're going to call them ultimately uh, are right here. I have a lot of snakes in my office, um, and I like them. But for me, it's just I, I like the thing I like about colubrids is I am, in case you couldn't tell, a bit of a spaz. 
and I got a little bit of ADHD, especially when it comes to biology. And I'm, I'm like, my way of doing everything in life is go, 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 go. And having a, a, a large, pretty snake that just is like, and sits there all day, that just doesn't do it for me. Um, but having like the Baron's racers that are zooming back and forth or the garters uh, that, that, you know, are very active. I like that. Um, it means you got to do a lot more maintenance. So I'm always cleaning poop. Uh, but I'm okay with that. It, you know, if, if I've got a clean poop, that's fine because I, I, I don't, I'm only keeping things that I'm interested in now. So right. uh, it's, it's worked out for the better, but yeah, no, definitely my scientific interests are with them. My herpetocultural interests are with them. They're definitely my group of snakes. Is is that why just because they're, they're more active than most? Yes. That, I mean, that, that that's part of it. I like that they're, taxonomy and systematics is complicated yeah um in the world of crayfish i describe new species of crayfish so i'm like in that up to my hips and it's nice to take like when i do that with a crayfish it really freaking matters because i'm the guy writing the paper so there's this like everything's got to be right Uh, i can take a step back and use that part of my brain and read a new species description for a snake or read about the taxonomic history of colubrids and it's just fun because i don't i have skin in the game but i don't at the same time Um, so i like that uh and then just the snakes that i have always enjoyed the most capturing and and going out and finding are colubrids and colubroids i I, it took me until my you know mid-30s to realize i don't have any problem going out and catching 30 or 40 northern water snakes or common water snakes in a day i would rather do that than go off on some long-winded mission and spend 12 hours and find one rare animal you know so no they just kind of really i just love them to death so that's that's fun to listen to because everyone has their own like ultimately what their favorite thing comes down to like what they what they're looking for most in like a reptile so like for you it's like movement and stuff like that for me though i i like um i like i've I like to handle things. Um, yep. I want to be able to handle it. So that's when I when I look for reptiles that I want to keep and stuff. That's the thing that I look for is like, is this something I'd be able to handle and stuff like that. So it's it's fun to listen to what uh, the different things that mm-hmm. get people excited about it. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so what are some of the other things you have in your uh, university's collection other than false water cobras, like? Or some more unique uh, animals in there. So we have probably the most unique animals we have are um, Hispaniolan golly wasps. And these are a type of lizard. Uh, They're in their own family now. They were lumped in with alligator lizards and and, and abronia and things like that. But now they're in their own group. Um, And we got those things from St. Louis Zoo. So the St. Louis Zoo had kind of they, they had a really good year breeding and they were running out of space and they basically uh, one of the things i've gotten to do is meet curators and zoos and basically try to form relationships and so i formed a relationship with the curator at st louis and it's lauren augustine and she essentially said well if you're willing to do the mountains of paperwork so we can ship these things from us to you we will certainly give them to you so we we aren't breeding them. We just kind of have them here and we're growing them up as part of the, the project. 
at St. Louis. Uh, other than that, um, we have some other kind of weird animals. We have a wood turtle that was seized by the New York Department of Conservation. So uh, poachers figured out that the West Virginia population of wood turtles was was doing pretty good. And they basically came down in and, and captured them. And then we're, we're moving them and selling them to China uh, because China's right now really into pet turtles. Turtles are kind of the thing when it gets to really? culture over there. And um, this guy was busted with a bunch of box turtles. And when they were checking his stuff, he fessed up and was like, well, there's some wood turtles over there. And you can't let them go, but there's no sense in like, euthanizing them. So the New York gave them back to West Virginia's DNR, and I'm extremely active with our state wildlife agency. And they were like, do you want this wood turtle? I was like, sure, we'll take the wood turtle. Uh, and now we're, we're quickly becoming the repository for animals that were seized under those uh, conditions. So we, we have that. Uh, but for the most part, the collection's just kind of normal animals. I, I have... I also have a collection, my personal collections at my house. Um, and the two collections do merge because we brewmate all our snakes at my house in my garage because it's just, my garage is perfect. I have a little uh, area where it gets super cold and I can drop animals down to the upper 40s, low 50s, which is what we need to, to do. But um, I've got a bunch of locality king snakes. So I was, I did have a bunch of Asiatic rat snakes and it was, you might've heard me say like, I'm now keeping what I want to keep. I like the Asiatic rat snakes. I still have a couple. I keep Japanese rat snakes and um, Oreo cryptophis, sort of bamboo rat snakes. Uh, but I, I had a bunch of great big beauty snakes and Dion's rat snakes and rhino rat snakes. And I basically realized that I like them, but I want when I got home, I didn't want something that was involved a bunch of brain power because I was so tired. And so I moved those on to forever homes and now i just have locality um getula king so i i have uh not the easterns but i have a whole bunch of florida king snakes from different counties and different phenotypes i have um speckled kings desert kings california kings uh, obviously the the false water cobras madagascar hognose snakes tricolor hognose snakes um baron's racers madagascar cat-eyed snakes I also like short-tailed pythons. I really wanted to be the Morelia guy, and then I got a blood python. I was like, yeah, this is definitely more my speed. It's a giant <laughs> slug that wants to rip my head off. It's perfect. <laughs> so, so I now have I have a pair of bloods. I have a, um, I'm looking to get a pair. Of, I have a nice big adult female Borneo, but I'm, try, I'm being choosy with the male, and then I like the black Sumatrans a lot. So I have a trio of those. Um, and then the ultimate water snake. Um, I have a pair of yellow anacondas that are That's fantastic. Awesome. Mm -hmm. They're in big enclosures. I had these real expensive, extremely large PVC enclosures built for them that are in my garage. Uh, and so, yeah. Um, what are you? What are your thoughts on going off of that? What are your thoughts on um, like size of enclosures? So. Um, I know I've seen like I've heard people saying that there's studies saying that like snakes don't need a lot of space and stuff as long as they have and, and which is we've actually had this conversation before with with hides you know they don't want like some yeah. snakes want smaller hides and smaller areas 
But as far as like enclosure size, um, what are your thoughts on like do you as far as like size, like just size when, when keeping my, my thoughts on that is that you have to know the biology of the beast. Mm, uh, yes. If you do not understand the natural history and ecology of the snake that you are keeping or the lizard or the turtle, uh, you're, you're going to base all of this off of uh, what others have done before you. And that very well might be spot on correct, or we might be consistently keeping things wrong. Uh, so the, a big thing for me, in fact, I have a lab. I'm the only person I know of that has two graduate labs, by the way, that don't have a damn thing to do with each other because <laughs> <laughs> I've got the crayfish lab. And then for zoo science, we have the evidence-based herpetoculture lab. And with the grad students that are in that lab, what I preach is that we're going to go study the biology, number one. And we're going to, if we can't get out in the rainforest, we're going to do a deep dive in the lit. If we don't have lit, because a lot of these things literally don't have anything written about them, um, we're going to then look at, watch the animals, give them different scenarios. So a barren enclosure, an enclosure with a lot of sticks and like climbing opportunities, an enclosure with hides on the bottom, an enclosure with hides on the top. And then we're going to just videotape them and see, are they using the habitat? Uh, and then use all of that to devise our husbandry methodology that's what i like to promote i do think for most snakes it is important for them to be able to stretch out the entire linear length of their body uh and and it's the reason for that is based off of data that came before the recent present there's been quite a few papers they've mostly come out of europe that are really pushing this idea where you have to have the enclosure be the length of the body of the snake or three times the length of the body of the snake. And it, my problem with them is not what they're saying. It's when you read the papers, they have an agenda. <laughs> like mm. when you, when you read these manuscripts, they're impassioned. They're not very objective. And they make me as a scientist go, what are you up to? Like you're, you're, yeah. you're pushing something here. I want to just see the evidence. And there is evidence that if a snake cannot stretch out all the way, um, they cannot allow their lung or lungs to fully stretch out uh, and respire properly, that you're going to end up with a, a problem with it, with anoxia. They're, they're going to get sclerotized tissues on their lungs. Their backbones are going to fuse a little bit. And that's where, where I feel like they need to stretch out. However, you can mimic that if you give the snake time outside of its cage to just slither around you have in effect mitigated that issue now i'm not saying that that then justifies keeping a six foot snake in a two by two box because that's just wrong right um but at the same time like the water cobras that are in my office right now they're in six foot long enclosures two of the my big breeder females are seven feet long so what do i do i open up the damn door and i let them out two or three times a week and they're destructive as hell, and they knock everything over in here. But at the same time, they're able to exhibit what we call species-specific behaviors. Uh, and so that should be the target, is species-specific behaviors. I have snakes at my house that I keep in a rack. I don't keep them on newspaper in the rack. I keep them with about two inches of um, substratum, a cocoa block mix with some orchid bark and sphagnum moss. And then I have a light that I positioned over the rack 
so that it's shooting down right in front of the rack. And it basically imitates dappled sunlight because the species that are in that rack are fossorial. They spend all their time on the ground. And that decision to put them in that cage that way was not based off of anything other than me reading all about Oreo cryptophis, which are the bamboo rat snakes. Okay. So like in that situation, I got no problems keeping that thing in a rack. And I feel like that's, that's the way it needs to be done. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> just let the animal tell you what it needs. Right. And there we go. This idea about like ball pythons, everybody's favorite snake. This whole thing where they live in termite mounds. And that is why we can keep them in a rack tub. There have been many a study done on ball pythons. They've been done by the governments where ball pythons live, literally trying to figure out the most effective way to catch a ball python. Okay. It's a management perspective. Right. They absolutely come up out of the burrows. They're crepuscular. They hunt and forage. They move around. So, like, does that mean that it needs a six foot long, three foot tall, three foot deep enclosure? No. But does that justify keeping an adult female ball python in a little freedom breeder rack with no space whatsoever? No. Uh, so, you know, I just feel like we got to be a little bit more wise and educated and also not be in these damn camps that keepers have a tendency to get into. And it goes for both sides because a lot of people you know, think that I'm 100% bioactive. I'm 100% naturalistic. I am not. 100% bioactive because bioactive can lead to problems if you don't do it right. Um, but if the naturalistic condition means a rack tub with some aspen, then I'm keeping it in a rack tub with some aspen. So going off of that. So I've recently had to downgrade my collection. So I don't have anything interesting now, but I do have a ball. I do have a ball Python <laughs> and um, I was keeping it in an enclosure. It, it couldn't fully stretch out in the enclosure, but it, it, I mean, it was large enough. But I wasn't sure if that was like, um, if that was good. But I had him on my porch, and then I was like, "But the porch is completely screened in and everything." And I live down here in Southwest Florida, so I was like, "Well, let me just let him have the porch and see." Mm -hmm. And I put tarps on the side so that way he doesn't feel like he's completely exposed all the time and everything. And he was so when once I did that, so much more active. Like yeah. he'd go all over the place, and he'd just find a little tiny spot he can shove himself in during the day and stuff but um at night and in the mornings he'd be all of the place so yes. much more active once i was able to like uh it, that's a great point because one thing that that i think is really interesting is that um a lot of people apparently don't go and look at their snakes after dark <laughs> <laughs> which i don't understand uh i run around like a nut job in my house with my headlamp on all the time my <laughs> and, and go creep on the snakes i have them in my garage and then i have them in my office uh, and, and so many snakes that are perceived to be not that active. And that's one of the reasons that justifies keeping them in a rack system or keeping them in a small enclosure. If you're up at like two or three hours after dark, they're doing laps around the cage. But because your behavior doesn't line up with their behavior, you make an assumption that they're inactive. Um, my son has, I got two ball pythons for him because that's what he wanted. It's like, yeah. okay. Uh, and I don't sleep. So, you know, I, his are set up in vivariums or not in tubs or anything. But when I go in at two o'clock in the morning, they are always out. Like, I don't, I, I really honestly don't think there's been a time I've gone into that room when the lights were off where they haven't at least been, you know, 
slightly periscoped uh, moving around. And so I just always take it back to like, I don't care about the camp you're in. Don't you just want to take care of these animals? Like that should just be the main driver. It should just boil down to that. You know, it's that simple. Yeah. And if if you can't, if you don't have a cage, it's big enough or a room, let's be real for like a 15 foot reticulated Python. You probably shouldn't get a 15 foot reticulated Python. My, I got the yellows because I knew they maxed out at about eight or nine feet. The enclosures they're in are 10 feet by three feet by four feet. And then I also let them come out and move around the garage. And the nice thing about my female, she's so damn big that I can just let her go wherever the hell because she can't get anywhere. Like she literally can't hide anywhere. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, but, but to, to kind of keep this conversation going, the short tail Python. So I'd read a lot about short tail pythons and that's one where they said, you got to keep them in a tub. You can't keep them in enclosure. And so I tried keeping them in my PVCs and there are absolute people that do and good on you. My experience with them is there's something about a PVC. It's probably has to deal with humidity in my house. That's why I don't think I can pull it off. I might be able to pull it off. I'm down where you are in Florida, yeah. um, but they just failed to thrive. Like they stopped eating horrible sheds. Um, I moved them into a nice big uh, rack system. I don't remember what the name of how big the tubs are, maybe FB nineties. And these are big tubs and they're doing great in there for all I can tell. Um, I, I let one of them out in my backyard just to see what it would do. Kind of like what you did on the porch. Yeah. The thing slithered over to um, this part of my yard where the weeds were kind of growing up, coiled up, did this really cool behavior where it kind of worked its way down into the leaves and the leaves actually kind of ended up on its back. And then I sat there and wrote a paper, like staring at it. It sat there for six hours and didn't move. Like wow. it just, yeah, it was almost like, all right, this is what I'm supposed to do. So with, you know, because of that observation, I have no problems keeping those guys in tubs. You see what I'm saying? So yes. anyway, I just think that, and that's what I teach in my lab, um, is that if, if you're going to do this thing, that's the way you should do it. It should all be driven, uh, learn about the biology, let the biology dictate what you do, and go on from there. Um. I forgot what I was going to say. It was, um, I forgot the question I was going to ask. Yeah, it happens. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so that's gone a bit back in the conversation, but when we're talking about, you know, what true clubers were, you mentioned that uh, it's like the Asiatic rats and the Lampropeltis, Petuophis, and Pantherophis here in America, along with Spilotes. Mm -hmm. uh, so what, we say that's like an indication that the main origin or radiation point of true colubers is maybe somewhere in like East Asia or North America then? Yes. So nat natricids and colubrids immigrated to North. The, the idea, the theory is that they are an Asiatic, they have an Asiatic origin. And then they basically came across this thing called Beringia, which is the great big land bridge um, up between Alaska and Russia. And I will fully admit when I was actually working on the Dipsadid book and I was trying to write up about the origins of Dipsadid and all that, I kept thinking like, how the hell do you get across an Arctic land bridge if you are a snake? Like this doesn't make sense. But but that actually happened in the middle of the, the, 
the age we're in, the Cenozoic. Um, and during that time period, the world was warmer and drier. So basically that land bridge wasn't like a little bridge. It was a fairly expansive chunk of real estate. Uh, and it was kind of like equivalent today to like Ontario's weather. So super cold winter, but if you kind of made it across in the spring and made it down through the summer, you could get down into uh, where we are. And one other colubrid I forgot, true colubrid, colubridy are the um, indigos. Drymarkin is in that group as well. Um, yes. Yeah, so, because I remember reading that, uh, I think a specific epoch is the Miocene. Yep. Uh, that's mm -hmm. when the world started kind of cooling down, drying out a bit, got more open. I remember reading that's when we found a huge radiation of uh, uh, snake fossils. So I've had yep. actually heard people in the Miocene as the age of snakes. So I, so I thought that was kind yes. of interesting. Yep. So are so there any a paper that just came out about that? Huh, I had to look that up. Um, so are there any Asiatic nutricines, like any remnant populations still left over in Asia? Oh, yeah. Oh, no, there's not remnant. There are, like, full-blown nutricines. And they have the the keelbacks. Uh, one genus is Rhabdophis, okay. which is, includes, like, Rhabdophis tigrinus is a the poisonous a pretty damn that. venomous thing, and it's the poisonous and venomous yeah. snake. Mm -hmm. is, there, is there a common name for that? I know there's something over there called a tiger keelback. I, I don't know. I mean, tigrinus, uh, that makes sense. Um, now, I, I should get you hooked up with, there's a guy, he's wonderful. His name's Kevin Messenger. He came out of the poly lab and then he got his PhD. Uh, and he studied that system. So he's he's the guy that figured out you know, all of that. And now he's at a university in China and his job is to basically like write books on the vipers of China and things like that. So he's kind of living the life right now. I looked up, I asked about the common name because I looked up to see if there's a common name for that um, just in Google. And like the thing that popped up was like Asian tiger snake. But if you look yep. up Asian tiger snake, it's, it's not the same thing. So I was like, I was like, that's weird, but I, yep. I wouldn't care if there's a common name or not. Nope. Um, I would go with tiger keelback. And there's a bunch of other nature, natricid genera over there um but i don't know too too much about them um why did uh, do you know well you just said you don't know like a whole ton ton but do you know why the uh that snake is both poisonous and venomous like how it, i mean yes. like it, it's like how it evolved to be that way why it, haven't other snakes done that i i don't know how the nuchal glands those are the glands in the neck right how they actually evolved right. i understand a little bit about the the venom poison system in that snake um, okay. they eat a lot of amphibians mm -hmm. and they basically are able to in the digestive process somehow take the constituent parts of the alkaloids in the they're called tetrodotoxins and bufotoxins right. uh, out of the toads during digestion and then they basically are able to send that up into get it to the glandular tissue and then the glandular tissue utilizes those biomolecules to then constitute a poison and it's it's pretty crazy right bit of biology that's kind of like a snake version of a poison dart frog almost yeah same thing with the for formic acid with the ants and everything mm -hmm. 
how come like other like Hognose eats a lot of toads? How come they haven't developed a, a way to do that? Uh, they were spending all their time just trying to deal with all the alkaloids. <laughs> they, they they have incredibly large adrenal glands on their mm. kidneys, um, which are basically there to just deal with this tremendous load of um toxins that they're getting. And a lot of snakes do some pretty cool things in response to feeding on toads. Um, there's a a species of dipsadid in South America. It's actually um it's a phylodryas, which is the same genus that the Barrens racer is in. And these herpetologists in the early 80s were studying this whole group of phylodryad snakes, and they were trying to figure out like how do you get six species from the same genus in one habitat? Like, I don't know, like how does this work? And so they were really paying attention to what they were eating. And what they found was that this one uh, species of toad, it's in the genus Ranella, and the genus Ranella is the same genus that um, the cane toad's in. So super huge uh, parotid gland and really, really gnarly toxins. And what they found was that this snake would attack these uh, toads, and the first thing it would do is it would flip them on their back and then eat them upside down. And the reason for eating it upside down, the biologist theorized, was um, snakes have a middle row, two rows of teeth that are along the palate of their mouth called vomerin teeth. And basically, if you're eating a toad and you're, you know, working your jaws into it, you're going to be stabbing the damn parotid gland multiple times. And so if you flip it upside down, you don't have that vomerin tooth issue hitting the parotid glands. And then the uh, mandibular teeth are oftentimes, they're more shaped like hooks and they're oftentimes smaller than the maxillary teeth which are the teeth up top and so the idea there was those teeth are not only going to like they're going to be puncturing the glands less than the maxillary and vomer and teeth so snakes have done all kinds of crazy behaviors to get around um those or those toxins and and amphibians and in this case with the asiatic guy it was like if you if you can't beat them join them and it just figured out a way to utilize the toxin for its own benefit now, are, do you know if, do they, are they like aware, if you want to use that word, that they have, the, like, do they behave as if they have that poison? No, they, they definitely do. They, um, they have a stylized behavior where they kind of periscope and then they tuck their head down and they, they kind of spread out their neck, uh, much like our water snakes do. Mm -hmm. I don't want to give the impression of a cobra, but it's definitely like, if you've ever caught an erodia, you know that they, if you get them by the tail and they're not chewing your arms off, they do that whole flare thing. And the rhabdophis will do the flare. And when they put their head down, the, the glandular, the glands start to exude this white poison onto the nape of their neck. And the idea there is that if anything bites their neck, which is going to be where you're biting to kill the snake, you're going to get that toxin. And I think if I'm understand it correctly, that it, it's very bitter it, it does not taste good. It causes burning. Like it's a, a true poison in that regard. And so it, the predators will spit the snake out uh, before they finish it off. That's really, that's really cool, actually. <laughs> um... Can you hear me? Uh, yeah. yeah, I can still hear you just fine. Um. um... Uh, Nate, did you have 
Sorry, sorry, my my mic disconnected. I didn't hear. What oh, you okay, said. yeah, yeah, we can hear you. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was that was really interesting. That was really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, did you have any other questions, Nate? Uh, yeah, I remember listening to your podcast. Uh, you mentioned that you did some, you chose, and by your own mission, made a mistake of doing your grad research with Eastern hog noses. Uh, you want to go a little detail about? That and maybe a little bit about yeah in general. Uh, so the genus Heterodon is both the bane of my existence <laughs> and my favorite group of snakes. <laughs> like I don't know how this has happened in the field. They just absolutely kick my ass. I I can find the rarest animals on earth, but if I go on a trip and I say I'm looking for Heterodon. Now, in the back of my brain, I put it at about a one in a million shot of actually finding them. Um, this all started with my master's. So with my master's thesis, uh, I, I got into the poly lab. I told Dr. Polly I wanted to study a snake. Dr. Polly immediately retorted, as a good advisor should, snakes are one of the most difficult groups of animals to study because you can't find enough of them to do anything with them. What I should have done in that moment, and I didn't, and now I'm doing it as a professor here, is I should have said, well... I'm going to study queen snakes because I've got this thriving population of them back home. But for some reason, I didn't say that. And I said, well, I would like to study a snake that nobody's looked at in West Virginia. And then Polly said, well, here they are. And he listed off a bunch of snakes. And of course, one of them was a hognose snake. At that point in time, I had not herped a hognose snake, not found one. But um, he also said that he knew where there were a bunch of them uh, around this town called Beckley in West Virginia. And Beckley was like an hour and 15 minutes from Huntington. So I was like, I'm on it. So I wrote a grant, got funded through the DNR. And my thesis was supposed to be, one, determining the distribution of hognose snakes in West Virginia. And I was actually, in the end, able to do that. Uh, It took me well beyond my master's to do it. But I'm stubborn as hell and didn't give up until I had enough data to say that. But then, two, I was going to do an odd ecology study where you basically study a little bit about a lot of these hognose snakes on this abandoned mine. And I will keep you from the nitty gritty details, but this um, man named Professor, he's actually a herpetological god. He's my hero in herpetology. Henry Fitch, he was based out of University of Kansas. He studied snakes by setting up drift fence arrays and putting down traps. They're called box traps. All it is is if you take a minnow trap and you turn it into a box, box trap it's an inverted cone trap and so i thought i'm gonna do this you know the way fitch did it so i begged pleaded stole did everything i could to get grad students to help me set up over a mile of drift fences on an abandoned strip mine in southern west virginia and i built over a hundred of those traps and we put them all up and no hognose snakes to be seen and when i got to the mine i just kept thinking like this doesn't look like hog habitat, but this guy had told Polly they were there. And we were two and a half months into the study. No hogs. I'm, I'm starting to get stressed out. Found all kinds of other snakes. And <laughs> I met the guy on the mine. And there was another grad student with me. Um, her name was Jamie. And I had my uh, stump ripper uh, in my hand. And if you don't know what that is, that's a titanium tipped snake hook. It's important for the story. And I walked up to this guy who remained, remained, 
rename that. We're not going to say his name. And I said, <laughs> hey, are you the guy that said that the hognose snakes were here to Dr. Polly like about a year ago? And he's like, oh, yeah, that was me. Um, and I said, well, well, where did you see them? And like, I'm, I'm basically trying to get more information out of the guy. And this guy's kind of older. And he looks at me and he goes, yeah, but, you know, I mean, I haven't seen a, a, a hog here in like 20 years. Oh, my God. Like, 20 years? <laughs> what do you mean 20 years? And, and he goes, oh, no, I saw those like back in the late 70s, early 80s. I guess I forgot to tell Tom that. Polly's name was Tom. And I had the stump ripper in my hand and I put in hundreds of hours at this point in time. Uh, there was a five day stretch. I did not leave that mine. Like I was just oh on God. the mine. Um and I apparently like lifted the hook up to take off his head with it. And Jamie just like gently put her hand on my hand and pushed the snake hook back down. <laughs> but in that moment, I realized like, I'm not going to get a degree. <laughs> like, I was right. <laughs> there are not hot nose snakes here. What the blank is going on? So I, I was able to pivot. Um, thank God the DNR was understanding. And my thesis, like within 24 hours, it had shifted. And I wasn't studying eastern hognose snakes anymore. I was studying <laughs> reptile and amphibian communities on an abandoned strip mine. And it's kind of hot garbage <laughs> because I went into it, you know, with the uh, with the objective of studying A. But luckily, I did what my advisor told me. And I took data on every single reptile I caught. And I'm so happy I did because I had enough to pivot to that thesis. But I didn't really have anything to do with statistics. So it was very descriptive. Um, and it was still interesting, but that's what like started this interesting dynamic I have with hognose snakes in the field. Um, last May, I went up to uh, Pennsylvania. There's hognose snakes are relatively common in the Poconos. And for the book, I, I was like, all right, I'm going to go find them. Um, and this is the best place to find them. And I had a spot where, where the, the people that gave me the, the site were like, we do not go and not find them. Uh, and I don't know if if you remember Nate, this wouldn't be the case with you, Matt, but in May last year or this year, we had this weird weather where it was supposed to be like a really nice, cool weekend. And then we got this sudden upwelling of uh, weather from the South. And yeah. we had a weekend where it was like a hundred degrees. In May. <laughs> yeah. That was when I went to look for hognose snakes. So it was oh, like no. a burning hellscape on this, um, railroad track so i didn't find them there now i did find them though i pivoted and went back to my blessed west by god and i have a, a a friend in the eastern panhandle and i called him and was like please for the love of all this good and holy i have to have a win can you just like help me get them and it ended up being the best west virginia herp day ever and we did get them we also got corn snakes in west virginia and that's like the rarest snake in west virginia so um but then we did this giant trip out west uh 10 days, literally went in October, Hogtober. Everybody talks about Hogtober. Um, found over 100 snakes. It was a great herping trip. Wow. We did get three Easterns. They were all dead on the road. But, you know, I, I, I do get to say I went to Kansas and saw Heterodon. They were smashed to oblivion, but I did see Heterodon. I just didn't see Nasicus. So I, I have plans to go um, out to the Midwest again. <laughs> this time I'm going to shoot for May. Uh, and then I, um, oh, and the other thing that's really funny is Simis, uh, the southern hognose snake. I had to make the decision, am I going to go for Simis this year or am I going to go for Nasicus? And I went for Nasicus. 
And while I'm out in Kansas looking for Nasicus, Kevin Messenger, the guy I talked about, who's in China, he he works on Southern hognose snakes. And he's me- he messaged me while I was out there. He's like, hey, can you get down here? I was like, why? He was back home in North Carolina. He's like, well, my friend just sent me these. And he sends me pictures of four freaking Southern hognose snakes the guy found on the road I would have been in had I ha- been on, had I made the decision to go down to look for Southerns this year instead of Western. So like uh, it literally no. is this, this like almost running <laughs> joke with myself that like it, it's just like in, in the ether that I'm not going to find them. So we, <laughs> yeah. We, um, yeah. I have a, I had a high school teacher who's just a naturalist, you know, local mm-hmm. nat really into like local naturalist stuff like that. You know, spent all of his adult childhood and adult life out in the woods uh, and he said in all his 60 plus years of life, he's only seen one wild Eastern hognose snake only one time. Mm-hmm. And the only other time he's ever seen a hognose snake was one of his uh, students he and his dad found a hognose. And of course, because we're in Ohio, everyone has copperhead phobia like crazy. Yeah. So they instantly killed it, put it in a jar of alcohol, labeled it the deadliest snake in Ohio and said, hey, look at this copperhead we found. And he had yeah, to very happened. gently put them down about that. <laughs> yeah. Me so, and uh, I, I double check. I'm pretty, but I'm pretty sure Eastern hognoses are actually Satan endangered here. But I have to double they check probably them. are. They're, they're, they're a weird snake. They are what we call locally abundant. So if you get on them, they're kind of common. And as you go into the Southeast, they, there's definitely areas where you can find them. Um, I'm really, ha- it's kind of funny. They're running one of the other jokes of the lab is that we got this South Carolina grant and I am just as happy to go to South Carolina to look for the herps as I am the crayfish. So it's kind of a win-win. Uh, but, um, and we're, re- we're doing that work. There's a lot of INAT ra- records of Eastern hogs. Um, but if, if you're not in one of those areas, they're just paying the ass. So <laughs> Me and uh, Nate, our senior year of college, along with another buddy of ours, came down here to South Florida um, to go herping and fishing and whatnot. But also, we were hoping to catch a Burmese python. Mm-hmm. And so we were, we were walking around the Everglades and everything. And oh, I don't know if I ever told you this, Nate, but a we like a few days after we left there, in the same exact spot where we were standing, a 14-foot-long python was found in the same exact spot we were at. <laughs> yeah, that's how it always goes. Um, no, but, but this is going to, 2022 is going to be my year. Uh, I'm not giving up until I get the Nasicus is personal. Like that was that Kansas trip was without question in my adult life, the most dedicated trip I've ever I've done for herps. Uh, and might've even been the longest herp trip I've done period. Uh, as far as consecutive days and, just like you said, we got home and I had a, a, a friend, Curtis Schmidt. He was the collections manager at um, the Sternberg Natural History Museum in Hayes, Kansas. And we actually were landing. I was walking out to the car and Curtis sent us a message. He was like, guess what they found where you were driving? And it was a whole bunch of Western hognose snakes. So uh, it was it, it's just written in the stars, man. Yeah, I this isn't reptile related, but it's the same exact thing with um, a gar fish. I, I do a lot of fishing, and a gar is just this white whale. And every single time I get closer to catching it, and every single time I think I can't possibly get any closer to catching it, the next mm-hmm. time I have to actually catch it. And I mean, just last week, 
I had the fish all the way up to the shore. I I went to pull it on, but the line broke because the way the gar are, are at. But there's like a bed of seagrass, so it was still sitting there, and or just water grass. And I dove in the water, and I had the fish <laughs> in my hand, <laughs> and it's still because it's a fish. It just squirted out, but it was like a yep. two gar, and it squirted out. But I had it in my hand. And I and I was I was so mad. I was like, "You got to be kidding me!" <laughs> yeah, no, been there many many times. Yeah, that's how it is though. Um, but it's it's fun. I still enjoy it. Yep. I I have friends that are um, when they go herping or fishing, they they have to catch something. Um, mm-hmm. I just enjoy being out there. You know, I, yeah. I mean, I want to catch something, but I I just enjoy being out there. Like I'm perfectly fine with not catching anything. It's it's just I just like being outside. So no, totally understand that. I'm more that way now that I'm older than I was when I was younger. When I when I was in my 20s and 30s, I. I would, it would feel like a failure. Um, like this trip to Kansas, it, it might seem like I feel like it was a failure. It was not a failure. I got all kinds of habitat pictures and then I added so many animals to my life list. It was ridiculous. So like it was nothing but a win. It's just funny that it went all that way for one critter and literally caught everything but it. Right. <laughs> so, exactly. Yeah. Now I've been there just going for one specific thing and you have a great day, so you can't complain, but yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yep. But you didn't catch the thing that you want. Yeah. Yep. Um, I've been trying to catch red-headed agamas down here in um, South Florida. Specifically the males, because the males are they they just look cooler. And I yeah. and, but it seems that whenever I find a population, there'll be like two males, and there's usually like a brightly colored one and a less brightly colored one, which I'm assuming is the dominant and yep. subordinate male, and then a large large swath of females and so and the females are much easier to catch probably because they don't seem to be as fast but it's also probably just because there's a lot more of them so yeah so i keep catching the females and i've been trying to catch a male but i haven't been able to so far that's been kind of my white whale with reptiles so far have you tried to noose them yeah um it so there was a so there I, there's a there's a population in front of this Walmart. So I kind of look like an idiot trying to like yeah. grab this thing in front of this Walmart. Mm-hmm. But um, it was in this bush and it kept like running around in this bush. So I'm trying to noose it, but I had so I used two different nooses. I use a paracord and then I have mm-hmm. like fishing line, just depending on what I'm you know trying to catch. And I had the paracord on at the time because I was catching an iguana when I first saw it. And so I was trying to get with the paracord, but I couldn't get anywhere near it and it'd run. So then I tried with the fishing line, but the, it was just too windy. And uh, uh, I couldn't, I, and because of the way the bush was and it was so windy, I just couldn't, I couldn't get it. Um, and then the only other, so that was over in Miami. Uh, I used, When I first moved down here, because I moved down here August of last year. Gotcha. When I first moved down, I couldn't find... At first, the only populations I could find were over there in like Miami area. Um, I'm starting to notice more and more, especially now that they're they're actually closer and closer to where I live. So then I started finding them in Naples. Now I'm finding them in Fort Myers and stuff, um, which is a lot not anywhere where I thought I'd find them. But there's this gas station in Naples where they're where they're at. But I can't. Um, the area is so open. They run away too quickly. I can't. Uh, I can't noose them. So um, I just have to try and get them with my hands and stuff. Which I came really close one day because he's in a bush and he he thought he was hiding, but I but I couldn't exactly see where he was at and I reached and I just missed. Him. Uh, but yeah, 
I haven't had much experience catching lizards. Um, I, I took a bunch of kids down to Key Largo on a diving trip. And there were iguanas all over the place. Uh, yeah. And when I lived in Florida, I lived up in Melbourne, which the, the Iggies weren't up there. But they were definitely, they could be up there now, but they weren't <laughs> very common, at least. But, you know, they were everywhere down in Key Largo. And I went up into a mangrove tree and caught one. And it was really funny because I was expecting when I put hands on it for it to just be a total explosion of animal. And it just totally gave up. Like the second I gave, <laughs> it just went limp. In fact, I actually thought, like, did I break its spine? Like, what the hell is going on here? Um, but, yeah, have you gone down into northern Key Largo where the Toke geckos are? So we when the the iguanas first off the iguanas in Key Largo are huge like they're way bigger yeah. than the ones that you'll find in in Miami or Naples mm -hmm. or anywhere else they're huge um, and that is funny when you grab did you noose it or did you grab it and it oh I I free <laughs> I was dangling in the mangrove tree and just grabbed it <laughs> with my right hand and helped for the best so that's so it's really funny whenever I noose iguanas. When I grab it, they twist and turn and go crazy. But as soon as you put your hands on it, they are completely like they don't move at all. It's it's yeah. crazy. So that's interesting that you say the same thing. But yeah, yeah, as soon as I grab them with my hands, they just they're limp. They they don't move at all. So it's pretty interesting. I'm not sure why they do that. But yeah, when we took the trip, me and Nate and the other guy down, we stopped in Marathon, which is about halfway mm -hmm. through the keys. And under a bridge, we we're going to sleep there. We kind of hoboed in a, in a van for like a week. Um, and we were going to do some fishing that night. So we're setting up for the fishing stuff. And we hear this weird noise. And we're all like, <laughs> what is that noise? And then me and Nate, because our other friend's more of a fishing guy. He's not as much of like a, as a herp guy. Me and Nate just look at each other, our eyes like widen. And we're like, it's a toke gecko. <laughs> so we go, we go running after it. But there, it, so there's like a line of trees there, and we can hear it somewhere in the trees. We're looking for it with our flashlights, and but there's a business on the other side there, with a bunch of boats and whatnot. And the guy, the guy's just like, "What the hell do you guys think you're doing?" <laughs> we're like looking for a, a lizard, a toke gecko, <laughs> and he's like, "Is that the best excuse you can come up with?" <laughs> yeah, sounds so like you're herping. <laughs> right, exactly. So. We were just like, uh, apparently he's been having kids break it into his stuff, so that's what he thought we were doing. <laughs> but uh, I've, I, I'm sure you've been in that situation where you have oh, to yeah. explain to someone that you're herping, but they have no idea what you're talking about, or why would you, why would you even be doing that? <laughs> so it was pretty yep. funny. We ended up not finding it. The, the guy was kind of like crappy about it, so we ended up walking away. So they were all over the neighborhood where our house was, and so we were doing what you were doing, just with flashlights at midnight around people's houses so uh but um nobody came out and bothered us uh i'm but we ended up getting a bunch of them they were they were all really? over the place where we were in i the heard them first like you did what was that in the north part of key Largo? key Largo. Yep. Mm -hmm. interesting i have to i have to take a trip over there and check it out yeah that'd be that'd be really cool to find a wild toke gecko absolutely the mediterranean ones are everywhere here but mm -hmm. But that'd be cool to find the tokes. Yeah. The um, day geckos are supposed to be down in like the Keys too somewhere, I've heard. But I've never seen one. So no, uh -huh. we, I didn't get any Felsuma. Um, we got those. And then being the Nerodia guy I am, we got a um, salt marsh snake, which was pretty cool. Yeah, that is cool. Yeah. yeah the, 
the overwhelmingly the vast majority of snakes I find here are like banded water snakes and black racers. There's like mm -hmm. if I see a snake 99.99% of the time it's one of those two. I just found one last night actually. I was uh I was actually frogging but I found I found some a uh, snake or two so that was fun. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, I was just at that uh, Columbus Expo last Saturday. And of course I saw plenty of uh toe cake geckos for sale for mm -hmm. not that much. You know, unsurprising. Mm -hmm. Definitely in courts, but uh, also I saw a ton of uh, fire skinks as well. So I'm kind of interested in uh, now. Also, my interest uh, interest is uh, spiked in maybe starting a fire skink colony of some sort. But we'll see. Yeah, fire skinks are cool. I had those when I was in college. Did you like them? Because I, from my understanding, they don't. Um, you don't see them a lot. Like they're always burrowed and yeah. stuff. They, they burrow if you have a light. So they like to bask, and so I set my lights on timers so they would mm, basking okay. light would be on an hour and a half and then it would be off and then a basking light would cut, pop up somewhere else for an hour and a half and by having the lights it almost forced the animals to move to, around to get out and in in that way uh i could actually see them doing stuff that's really smart i, yeah. <laughs> I have to look into doing something like that <laughs> what type of enclosure do you keep them in they were in a 40 gallon breeder tank so nothing overly crazy, but no, that's what I had them in. And then I had a bunch of cypress mulch and then some rocks uh, and, and stuff like that for them to burrow under. Yeah. I had them for about a year and a half. I think I gave them away when I went to Marshall, actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I saw them for sale and they weren't that expensive either. I think they were mm -hmm. like, could be misremembering, but I think they're like 15 bucks a piece, which. Oh, man, I didn't see. I saw those same skinks because I was at that same expo. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was talking to Andy when I was there and he yeah. said, Oh, you just missed him. Yeah, I had to get um I I am having a hell of a time with my garter snakes. I have the Oregon red spotted garter snakes, and I have these four females that are adults and perfect. And the zircles um are kind of giving me and helping me with the garters, and they, they've given me some males, and the males just keep for absolutely stupid reasons dying. So I had to <laughs> We're right at brumation time, and I I asked the circles if they had any surplus males, uh, and they said they did. So we were going to do a trade, and I had to get those. But then I had to also go shopping with Kathy for Christmas, so it was like a rocket run from Wheeling to Columbus, which is about two hours. I think I was in the expo for like a half an hour. <laughs> then I just <laughs> turned around and went all the way back to Wheeling so I could get home by noon. But anyway. All right, well, Nate, did you have any more questions? Uh, not that I could think of off the top of my head, unless you have awesome. uh, something else you want to say. Yeah, did you have anything else you wanted to mention? No, I just, I love what you two are doing, and I really like that there's podcasts now for all the reptile nerds. Yeah, and I love sure. the concept of yours, where you have the science, the field stuff, and the husbandry all intertwined. Because uh, in all actuality, that's more reflective of me um than my own podcast <laughs> so you know so no keep doing the good work guys it's it's a good one. Oh, thank awesome. you I'm glad thank it. you i really appreciate it yep all right well until next time signing yep. off thank you, you. Mm -hmm. bye mm -hmm.